I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Happy New Year! Should cashing in your final salary pension be the resolution you make in 2017? John Lee, the small cap investor and author of FT Money's My Portfolio column, gives us his thoughts on the year ahead. And can money really buy you happiness? Jason Butler, our wealth man columnist, is not convinced. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's most popular weekly podcast. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, and I'll be giving you this week's money news in downloadable form. First up, if you're lucky enough to have a defined benefit pension, also known as a final salary scheme, then the thought of giving up a secure income in retirement may sound crazy. But over the Christmas break, FT Money revealed that record transfer valuations are tempting some really famous faces to cash in, including Baroness Altman, the former pensions minister, and even Martin Wolf, the FT's senior economic commentator. I'm joined in the FT studio by Josephine Cumbo, the FT's pensions correspondent who's been hot on the trail of this story. Joe, welcome to The Money Show. Morning and Happy New Year. Well, sadly, I don't have a final salary pension, but many of our listeners will have. Can you start by explaining why the transfer valuations are so high? What it boils down to is that pension schemes invest in government bonds and they're very sensitive to movements in those assets. The yields on government bonds have been driven lower due to the economic environment this year. And what this has had the effect of doing is driving up deficits and also transfer valuations, the offers these pension schemes will give you to cash in your pension. So it all boils down to movements in bonds, basically. And what has driven the recent spike in transfer valuations has been the EU referendum, which had caused a bit of chaos on the markets, if you can remember, back in July. And that caused gilt yields to fall and transfer valuations shot up by sort of 20%. So that's led us to cover the story. And as you mentioned, Baroness Altman, recognising that it was a good time for her to cash in. OK, so Martin Wolf has calculated he'd have to live to the grand old age of 100 to get the equivalent payout from his final salary scheme year by year. So he's cashed in. But practically, what are the questions you should ask yourself before you even consider such a step? OK, let's just take a step back to what Martin would have considered. When you're made an offer, they tend to do it by multiple of your pension income. Say, for example, if you're getting £10,000 per year, it used to be around 20 to 25 pre-times when it went all crazy. But now we're seeing offers of 35 to 40 times 
income, which is creating huge sums and people are finding them very attractive. But you shouldn't be completely dazzled by the large sums Mm. on offer because there is a lot to be said for final salary pension schemes in that most of them have inflation proofing. They're secure. You will be able to sleep at night knowing that you're getting a regular income. If you are to cash in, if you're considering cashing in your pension, you'll have to think about a number of things. For example, how would you match that inflation protection that most people would get Mm. each year on? What would you do with the money? Where would you invest it? Would you be thinking about how you're going to pay for the charges for someone to manage that money? And what about survivor's benefits? Because final salary pensions typically will pay out when you die to a survivor, and that provides a level of comfort and assurance to a lot of people. And finally, you'll have to think about tax, because once the money moves out of the final salary environment and it's a lump sum, you'll have to think about the tax bill. Perhaps it'll be more pressing for you if it's a bigger lump sum. That's something that you'll have to consider. Now, finally, are there any groups of people for whom this wouldn't work or for whom it could be a very bad idea? Well, in general, if you're in good health, they say that it's probably better to stick with a final salary pension because you're going to enjoy the benefit of that for a lot longer. If you're in poorer health, you might want to think about cashing in because you might be able to get a better deal outside for another annuity which recognises you know, you're not going to live as long or you can pass it on to your survivors because it, it, it can be tax-free from age 75. The final salary pension doesn't have that benefit. Another area of your single, for example, you're not going to benefit from the survivor's pension or a survivor won't. So perhaps if you're single and in good health, you might want to consider cashing in your pension but with any decisions of this sort which are really very complex and I would recommend that anyone considers getting professional financial advice if the pension pot is if your pension transfer sum is £30,000 or more you need to get advice that's part of the process Mm -hmm. but I would suggest that even if it was less than that your transfer pot but you get some advice and consider the whole process and your options. Well thanks very much then that was Joe Cumbay the FT's award-winning pensions correspondent. You can read the financial new year's resolutions of all the FT money columnists and experts online now at ft.com slash money that's free to read by the way or in FT money this Saturday as part of the weekend newspaper and we will be returning to the topic of final salary pensions many times, I suspect, throughout the year ahead. Now, did your investments have a bumpy ride in 2016? Our small cap champion John Lee, or Lord Lee of Trafford to give him his full moniker, is happy to admit it was a steady and unspectacular year for his own portfolio, but then that's exactly the kind of performance he was after. He joins me on the line now to explain. Welcome, John. And Happy New Year to you. And Happy New Year to you too, and to listeners. So your small cap shares may have been steady and unspectacular, as you say in your column this week, but you much prefer this to the volatile patterns of other areas of the stock market. Explain. Yes, I mean, I've been investing as a private investor for getting on for 50 years now, and my approach basically is to endeavour to achieve capital appreciation year on year, avoid risks, avoid the losses, uh, and hopefully manage to achieve an increasing flow of dividend income. And some areas of the stock market, like mining, for example, have shown you know great outperformance um, this year, as you note in your piece. But the shares in your portfolio, which as regular readers will know, tend to be smaller, family-owned companies, 
you'd prefer because they're very resilient to overall market volatility. So talk us through which shares in your portfolio did the best in 2016 and which did the worst. The best was uh, Treat, the Flavours and Fragrances, a company based in Paris St Edmunds. They were up uh, just over 50%. And then I had a clutch of uh, holdings uh, that achieved 30% plus growth. Uh, James Fisher, uh, the shipping services company that I held for years, Lock and Store in Safe Storage, Tarsus in uh, uh, events and exhibitions, uh, FW Thorpe, the lighting equipment manufacturer, and Quarto, the publisher. So that little grouping all achieved more than 30%. And what about those that did badly? Well, I'm glad to say I only had a couple of uh, negatives over the year. There was one realised loss, that was Raymar, the shipping services company, where uh, I did activate my 20% stop loss, took a realised loss, but it would have been a lot worse had I held on to the the shares. But of my existing holdings, the couple that did go down the worst was probably business services group Christie's, who Mm. fell by about 35%. But you're convinced of their long-term prospects, as you say in your column. (laughs) Yes, I think they are um, very fundamentally undervalued. I mean, when they were floated in, uh, I think it was 1988, they came out at something like 145p a share. And today they're probably around the the 90p mark, uh, maybe a little less than that. And the business is very substantially bigger than it was when they were floated. So, you know, I hope and believe in time that they will recover. But to pick up your earlier point, yes, I avoid the more volatile sectors, the mining and exploration stocks, the biotech stocks. I don't back startups. I come in at a level where the businesses hopefully are established, are profitable, are paying dividends, and where the outlook, I believe, is fairly favourable. And certainly the performance of your portfolio in 2016 reflects that, as you say, steady and unspectacular. Can you give us the bottom line? Well, the bottom line is uh, that it was a 16% capital appreciation over the year. That compares with 18% in 2015. Both those figures exclude dividends. So I suppose if one takes an overall dividend yield of probably around 2%, something like that, then the total return was probably around 18% uh, for 2016. So, you know, I'm very comfortable with that. Uh, As I say, I'm looking uh, not to have the odd spectacular year volatility, but what I really want is year-on-year performance, and therefore I was quite satisfied really with my 16% growth. Well, not too shabby, I'd say. Now, in previous years, you've had a buyout boost as some of the smaller companies you own have taken over, but there were none in the past year. Do you think that M&A activity could return to your small-cap portfolio in the year ahead? Uh, It's just one of those things, really, that um, nothing happened in terms of takeovers within my portfolio. Curious enough, my daughter, whose portfolio I do look after, had two takeover bids during the year at D Valley, the water utility company that supplies Chester and Wrexham, and MP Evans, uh, Palm Oil Company. But I didn't have any, this is just the way it goes, really. But I've gone on record as saying that I believe, probably taking a 10 year view, three quarters of my holdings will probably be taken over at some stage. As far as 2017 is concerned, I think. The likelihood is that uh, there will, fingers crossed, maybe be one or two coming along. Obviously, with the fall in the value of the pound post-Brexit, our companies are that much cheaper for US buyers particularly. So we'll see. But quite honestly, I would prefer my individual companies to go on year on year increasing profits and increasing dividends and, and build for the long term 
rather than have uh, takeovers, even though obviously when a takeover bid does come in, it comes in almost uh, invariably at a quite a nice premium on the then prevailing market price. Well, thanks very much. That was Lord Lee, FT Money's My Portfolio Economist. You can read his latest musings online now at ft.com slash money and in this Saturday's newspaper. Many of us will have resolved to get a pay rise or a promotion in 2017, but stop and think. Will more money really increase your level of happiness? This is the subject that our wealth man columnist Jason Butler has been pondering over a rather expensive bottle of wine with a close friend. Jason, welcome to the show. Hello, Happy New Year. Well, in answering the question, can money make you happy? You first considered the emotional relationship that we all have with our finances. Tell us more. Well, it's quite complex. Money's quite an abstract thing for most of us. And how we think and feel and behave about money really very much comes from our upbringing, our early experiences, and how we internalise that. And all the research that I've read, and certainly my experience when I was a financial advisor, is that that creates deep-seated perspectives about money. And that can mean that we either see money as a source of pain or a source of happiness, or we can find that it affects how we and the decisions we make and whether we actually enjoy the fruits of our labour, how we're motivated, that kind of stuff. So it's, it's quite a complex thing, and it's different for every person. Everyone has their own money story, their own money script, their own money concepts. So are there things that can make you happier than money? It's a very personal subject, and it's difficult to make generalisations, but I've read most of the research on this. And there are certain things that you can do more of and less of to get more happiness for your money buck. I think the most important thing in for most people is to have a sense of purpose, whatever that is for you. Having a sense of purpose is this, the central grounding of happiness. But unlike the traditional financial advisors, my view is that the decisions you have to make that affect your happiness are all about working and spending decisions. Okay. So on one hand, things that can make you happier are doing a job that you enjoy. And there are many people who are doing jobs that they don't enjoy because they've managed to get a, a lifestyle that costs so much money that they're forced to, if I can use the word, prostitute themselves to do to do to do economic work and activities that they would prefer not to, and you see this quite a lot with high-paid people, which is why with City and Guilds they found that the most unhappy profession were bankers. I know there'll be a lot of uh, tears shed for them, and the happiest were florists and gardeners. So your decisions about what you do to earn a crust, as it were, is just as important. So life's too short to to waste it doing things you don't like. And even if you haven't got the ideal job, the first thing is to think about what would be the best thing for you. I mean, if you've got to earn money, you've got to earn money. And then the other thing is to think about how much is enough because we end up a bit like the sort of the cupboard in the, you know, the more storage space you've got in your house, the more rubbish you'll collect. Just having more income doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to do wise things with it. And if you're doing a job that you don't like or that is taking you away from your family or affecting your mental and physical health, then perhaps that's something to think of. More money doesn't necessarily mean more happiness. Okay, so what should listeners spend their money on in order to get the maximum return on happiness? Well, again, it's it's very personal, but the research says that you should try and spend more of your money on buying life experiences okay. um, rather than things. So, for instance, I remember the experience of going to see Queen play live in 1986 at Wembley, and I can describe it, and I've bored <laughs> everyone to tears over the years many, many times with that experience, and I can still remember it now, even including uh, excess being booed off stage. <laughs> um, and But I can't even remember the feeling of buying a new Audi a year and a half ago, which is now like a skip because we've got two dogs and we live in the country. 
So the buying possessions, the rush or the high, you lose that very quickly, whereas mm. experiences are better for you. The second thing is to try and spend your money on things where you are spending on other people or causes that are important to you. So things either where you're strengthening personal relationships with people, so perhaps spending time with them or spending money on them, buying, even buying someone in the front of you in the queue in the coffee house a cup of coffee and you don't even know who they are. I mean, you hear it, it's a bit, try it, the but try it. it. Back. I mean, obviously in London you might get funny looks, but so try and spend it on other people. And then the other thing is, is also make some things a treat. Don't just have, just because you can afford it, perhaps put it off to, say, when you've cleared out the attic that you're actually going to go out for that nice meal. So try and create a bit more of a reward aspect for it. But I think the most important thing for people is to realise that your personal self-worth is not linked to your net worth. And there are many people who are what I call very rich in many aspects that don't necessarily have a large amount of income. But the most important thing, I think, is also to be very self-aware of what good looks like for you. And just because the life you're living at the moment is the life that you're living doesn't mean to say that you can't change it. And don't give yourself the excuses that you can't because you need the money or you can't get a job in that area or you've got other obligations. Start with what does good look like in terms of your life and how money fits into that to make you really satisfied and happy. And then just work back to what might need to change over time to get you nearer to that ideal. Well, thanks very much there to the wealth man, Jason Butler. You can read his column now, Can Money Make You Happy? at ft.com slash money. Have you got a story that you'd like the FT Money team to follow up or a question to pose to our team of financial experts? We'd love to hear from you. You can email us money at ft.com, tweet us at FT Money or comment on our articles online at ft.com slash money. The Money Show will be back next Thursday at the usual time. Goodbye. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.